in God's house together. Uh, I want to invite you to take your Bible to uh, the book of John chapter 11. We're going to pause this morning just for today uh, in our exposition of Ephesians. We'll pick up back in it next week uh, as we'll be looking at Ephesians uh, 2 uh, again uh, in verse uh, 11 and forward. Uh, but for today, I want to pause and uh, look at a, a passage of Scripture that uh, has, has been on my heart and mind through this week, and uh, we're going to look at John 11, John 11, and I'm going to begin in verse 17 and come down through verse 21. And uh, this particular passage, the whole chapter, we're probably very familiar with the account where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And there's many applications that we can glean from this, uh, but I want to look specifically at God's providence in His working through this whole scenario. And uh, the title of the message this morning is God's Providence in Our Pain. God's Providence in Our Pain. And uh, we as human beings, we live this life and we endure and go through many things that we would call painful, don't we? We, uh, we go through trials, we go through times of suffering, and we go through things that we don't fully understand. And what we must remember is that God's hand of providence is at work through all of it. Uh, through all of it, every day of our life. And I want to look this morning at this text and I pray that it would encourage you and uh, help us here today. Notice with me, if you would, in John 11. I just want to read verse 17 through verse 21 to start, and then we'll look at some of this chapter as we come along. But notice with me, if you would, now when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now you come down to verse number 32, and I want you to see that Mary has the exact same response. When Jesus finally comes to where Mary is, now when Mary had came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. So we think about what's going on in this scenario and we can think about things in our own lives as well that may apply. We think about ourselves. Have we ever experienced great pain? We all would say we have, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, uh, mental pain. We've all experienced pain in sorts of varying degrees. In those times, have you ever felt like the Lord was absent? Have you ever felt like uh, perhaps you wondered uh, what was going on Then, in these sort of situations? In any form of crisis or pain, these questions come to our minds uh, because that's our natural tendency is to think in this way. Even those who are true believers in Christ have wrestled with the question of how God's providence could truly be involved in the working of this situation for good. Now, I use this experience of my own life by way of example. When my own father passed away in 2016, that moment that we got the news uh, of his passing, we felt as if we were in somewhat of a uh, dark pit of despair. It's just something that when you lose a loved one that is somewhat out of, out of, out of uh, uh, a surprise, you don't really know what to think. It's unexpected. He was 51 years old and he just fell down dead at work. 
Didn't expect that at all. We expected him to live a lot longer than 51 years. We had no warning or understanding of that situation. And when I got word that they were rushing Dad to the hospital from Mom, we hung up the phone and immediately fell to my knees in prayer and begged of God, God, please save my dad. Please help him. But I remember in that moment specifically that as I prayed that prayer, I felt as if it didn't even leave the room. It's as if God had solidified in my conscience, He's already gone. And just a few moments later, I got that very word, that He was already gone. I, in a sense, knew it. I just knew it. And it's in those moments that uh, we, we, we think of the question that comes to our mind as to why. Why now? Why did it happen this way? We consider where the Lord was and what He was doing. And we are all human and go through dark times of doubt and despair and wonder, how is God's providence working in this? Well, this is essentially what we'll find in our own text. We see two sisters, Mary and Martha, who have a brother named Lazarus who is sick and is brought to the point of death. And their question has always stuck out to me. In verse 21, we read that Martha says to the Lord, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then you come down to verse number 32. Lord, if you had been here, Mary says, my brother would not have died. Have we ever thought something like that? Lord, if you had been here or done something, things could have been different. Now, it is true that if Jesus had physically been there, something could have been done. He could have healed him. But at the same time, Jesus didn't have to be there to heal him. He could have done it from far away. You see, the passage here, which looks like a hopeless and dark time, turns into an event of unparalleled power and light and glory to God. And given that we have the big picture of what's happening in this event, we can learn some truth about how God works in our own dark circumstances. And how God in His providence works beyond what we immediately see. Now, in the moment of experiencing the passing of loved one, we don't immediately see what's going on. But several years afterwards, I can look back and see how God had used even the taking of my dad in my life and how He used it for His glory and continues to do so. Now, I want you to see three points here this morning. You know my typical fashion. It's a three-point message, right? And uh, that's, that's kind of a Baptist thing I hear, but uh, sometimes I break the Baptist rule and I'll go to four. Maybe I'll sh summarize it down to two, but it's still just as long as three points. So three points here this morning I want you to just grasp here. I want you to see in our text, we see the power of Jesus was desired at first. We see the power of Jesus desired. And we're going to take you back into the beginning of the chapter. And that what we find is the problem here with Lazarus is that he has a sickness that was very serious and concerning. In verse 11, we find there was a, verse 1, excuse me, of chapter 1, of chapter 11, now there was a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, we've read of Mary and Martha and, and uh, throughout the, the Scriptures and uh, their prominent women that we see in the life of Jesus, but we also know that they have a brother named Lazarus. And this family was good friends of Jesus. And where do we learn about Lazarus Hill? He is ill. He is 
sick. He had some kind of a physical sickness that's unknown to us. We don't know exactly what he has. But this sickness was bad enough that Mary and Martha and those who love Lazarus, they are very concerned. Now, when someone very close to you gets sick, what's our natural reaction? We're concerned. We're concerned about them. It troubles us. And depending on the threat of the sickness, it can be a miserable feeling because there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing at all. Now, I know that when any of our, our children get sick, I mean, I, I just it just breaks my heart to see them. If they've got fevers, if they've got the flu or whatever, uh, just to see them in that miserable condition because essentially you can't do anything to help them. You can only give them the medicine that you can give them and, and pray. You wish you could trade places with them, but you can't. And so in the case of Lazarus, there's a certain someone that they know they have a mutual friend that can absolutely fix this whole situation. Lazarus in his sickness, they know that they can seek someone. There is someone there in their life that can heal him instantly. And that someone is none other than Jesus. We find that they were very close friends. You'll notice how Lazarus is described. With Jesus. He says, He whom you love. He whom you love. Now, in verse 5, we see that truth repeated. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and her sister, and Lazarus. Well, didn't Jesus love others too? Of course he did. But you understand that this is an expression that describes the kind of close friendship that these people had with Jesus. Now, we sometimes don't think of Jesus as having real friendships, do we? Just disciples and followers and those that just go along with Him. We understand Jesus was a human being. He had real friends, real people that He uh, would spend time with and talk to and uh, enjoy their company and fellowship. And, and, and as you'll see through this whole narrative, the humanity is on display along with the deity of Jesus. Now the Lord loved Lazarus, but so did His sisters. Lazarus' family wants nothing more than for their brother to be healed. And understand, there was no modern medicine or procedures that could be given. Help was very limited in that day. The sickness of Lazarus was a very troubling event for his sisters. And where is it that we're called to go to with our troubles? We are called to go unto the Lord. And that is why we pray, Right? The psalmist said in Psalm 121 and verse 1 through 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The reason you and I pray to God is because He's the one who can help, right? The maker of heaven and earth is the only one who has the power to help us in our situation. Otherwise, there's no point in praying. The very point of prayer is to appeal to the one who has power over the situation. So this is what they do. They Secondly, they seek the Lord for help. Not only do we see the sickness of Lazarus was, was serious, but they seek the Lord for help. So Mary and Martha, they don't want to leave Lazarus, leave his side, to go find Jesus. So in verse 3, what do we find? They sent to Him. Now, in that day, you couldn't just jump in the car and drive down the road to find help. You couldn't pick up your phone and say, Hey Jesus, would you get over here ASAP? They didn't have an app that told them exactly where Jesus was. You know, we've got those now, right? In fact, there's a lot of apps that are tracking you. You probably don't even know it. Somebody knows where you're at. It's 
kind of technology age we live in. So they had to send someone to find Jesus and tell him the news. Can you imagine having the task of finding someone quickly without means of communicating that we have today? Imagine you're the one that gets word from Mary and Martha. We go find Jesus. Where do I even begin? How do we get in touch with Him? How are we going to find Him? You can imagine the urgency of those messengers trying to find Jesus. Now, I would venture to say perhaps they had some idea of where He was. If you look at John 10 and verse 40, we read that He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at the first, and there He remained. So, unless He's moved in between that time, He's in that general vicinity. And typically, when Jesus was anywhere, there was people that knew where He was because He was the attention of that day, right? But nevertheless, there was a dire situation here that demanded urgency. And Mary and Martha want Jesus as quickly as possible to come and help them. They didn't just want Him to come and be there for comfort. They wanted His power of healing to save their brother. Now Jesus, beyond doubt, had proven Himself that He's the one who can do this. What do we learn from the ministry of Jesus? It is undeniable that He is the promised Messiah who fulfills God's expectation. It is undeniable that He is the one who one by one is fulfilling the prophecies of the Messiah and included in those prophecies is the power of healing within His earthly ministry. And we read through all the accounts of this great power that Jesus has to heal anything that is presented to Him. We read in Matthew 9.35, listen to this. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So you look at Jesus, it doesn't matter what it was, if they were a leper, which was such a tragic and hopeless sickness of that day, He healed them instantly. If they couldn't walk, He could give them their legs. If they couldn't see, He could give them their eyes. If they couldn't hear, He could give them their ears. He could heal anything. So they knew that Jesus alone could save Lazarus. Jesus has the power over all disease. No matter what it was. And with Lazarus sick and on the brink of death, Jesus could save him. But what would Jesus do... When he gets the news that his friend that he dearly loves is sick unto death, what would Jesus do with that information? What would we expect him to do? What would you do? Well, notice with me number two this morning, the power of Jesus was delayed. Not only was it desired, this is the, this is the whole premise of this narrative. Lazarus is sick, we need the power of Jesus to come and heal him. But in number two, we see the power of Jesus was delayed. And the decision of Jesus here is to wait. Not go immediately, but to wait. Look at verse 6 with me. Look at verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he immediately rushed to Bethany. No? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He doesn't pick up his things and tell the disciples, let's go! He just stays for two days longer. Now, we look at this outside looking in. Doesn't that seem somewhat careless? Doesn't that seem like that might be the wrong decision? 
Shouldn't, Je- shouldn't Jesus be rushing to where Lazarus was? I mean, when someone is in desperate need of healing, isn't the medicine rushed to the patient? Isn't that the reason we have ambulances and an ER at the hospital? Is for the urgency of the need at hand for those who are sick and ill? Most of us have probably heard of the famous story of Balto. Anybody heard of Balto and the dog? That was one of my favorite movies growing up. But in January of 1925, doctors realized that a potentially deadly uh, disease, an epidemic, was about to sweep through gnomes, young people. And the only serum that could stop the outbreak was in Anchorage, Alaska. And the engine of the only aircraft that could quickly deliver the medicine was frozen and would not start. After considering all the alternatives, officials decided to move the medicine via multiple dog sled teams. The serum was transported by train from Anchorage to Nenana, where the first musher embarked as part of a relay aimed at delivering the serum to Nome. More than 20 mushers took part facing a blizzard with negative 23 degrees temperatures and strong winds. Balto, as I mentioned, he was the Siberian Husky that led his team on that final leg in 1925, getting that serum run to Nome. Now you look at that, the nearness of death from sickness provokes deep urgency to get the medicine to those who are sick, right? But was Lazarus's sickness, was it not urgent? Was Lazarus not in a, a state of urgency in which he needed help that only the Lord could give? Not only was this urgent for the sake of saving Lazarus's life, but consider the pain that Lazarus is in moment by moment. Consider the pain that Mary and Martha are enduring moment by moment. Now, sickness is painful inherently of itself, right? We don't know exactly what kind of sickness he had, but any sickness that leads us to death is not enjoyable. It's painful. Physically. Mentally. Emotionally. Think of the pain Mary and Martha are enduring through this time. The pain of anxiety for their brother. The pain of helplessness, that they can do nothing about it. Did they know that Jesus decided to wait two days before coming? I think not. Were they in constant wonder if they would see Jesus and His disciples appear in the distance and be on their way and and think, oh, there's the hope, He's here. Perhaps they felt like the psalmist with great pain in their soul, waiting upon the Lord and wondering, how long? David says in Psalm 6.3, My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How long? Sometimes we wonder that question when we're in times of trouble. Now, from our human perspective, we would think the Lord should respond immediately, right? That's our human perspective would give us. After all, that's often how we think when we pray, don't we? Sometimes when we're in dire situations, we want the Lord to answer that prayer immediately. But here's what we have to remember. That what looks like the right move to us might not be the right move in God's eyes. You understand that we cannot forget as Christians that God is providential over every detail of our lives and He acts according to His sovereign will. Now, some of us, not all, we don't always get that in our minds. We don't get that God is sovereign over everything, not just some things. 
Large part of Christianity thinks that God's just in control here and there and maybe not so much here. God is in control over everything. Everything. There's nothing lacking under His control. And He does whatsoever He pleases in this world. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And here's the reality. Often, God's sovereign will is not understood by us. And you understand why it's not understood by us? Because God is infinite and we are finite. We're not made to fully comprehend the depths of God's will and working. We're just not. His ways and purposes are beyond the comprehension of mankind. God says through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know what that verse does to me? It makes me feel very, very small. You know why it makes me feel that way? Because I am very, very small. God just tells us the truth. He says, my ways are are this much higher than yours. You can't measure the distance of the heavens from the earth. It's infinite. His ways are so much greater than ours. And here's the reality. It is not always God's will to do exactly what we want when we want Him to. It doesn't work that way. And this is the case for Mary and Martha. They desired... Their will was for Jesus. Come, save our brother. And so they waited. They waited. And then the day came when there was no more hope of healing Lazarus. Lazarus took his last breath. And they began to make the proper burial preparations. So we see, secondly, under this heading, that the death of Lazarus was complete. The decision of Jesus, when he hears the news, We're going to wait two more days. Which brought us to this. The death of Lazarus was complete. Now, after those two days were done, Jesus decides to go toward where Lazarus is. But He gives His disciples the news in verse 11-14. through Notice this with me. I told you we're coming through this chapter. eleven, Verse 11 says, After saying these things, He said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. So what do you see about the disciples' knowledge of this? They think that, well, Lazarus is sleeping and through his sleep he'll just get well because your body heals when you're sleeping, right? That's why sleep and rest are so important if you're sick. But then Jesus tells them something that must have shocked them. Now Jesus in verse 13, John gives us description that what Jesus is really talking about. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant that he was taking rest and sleep. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Now consider the disciples' shock at this as well. Them hearing this news. Firstly, understand, they also were friends of Lazarus. Not just Jesus. Jesus says, our friend Lazarus. I mean, he was Jesus' friend, but the disciples were friends with him too. Our friend Lazarus. So, so, so they would have experienced the, the sorrow of, of losing a friend to death. Secondly, they must have realized that Jesus' delay in coming to him has led to his death because they knew that Jesus 
decided to stay for two days longer. And so the mortal life of Lazarus had ended. Like countless others in human history, sickness took him to the grave. And so Mary, Martha, and the disciples now experience the pain of losing a loved one. Now as they approach the town of Bethany, this is where we come to our text that we opened up with. They approach the town of Bethany. Upon word that Jesus was coming, we come to where we read, Mary, Martha went out to meet him. She comes to him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, here's something that comes to my attention. I wonder what her tone was in those words. You understand that you can't read tone in text. That's why it's not wise to uh, maybe debate through text or email or something like that. Or You can easily misread that, the tone of a person, because you can't hear it, right? Don't jump to conclusions. So we can't jump to conclusions about it. But I did read, what if what was this affirmation or was it accusation from Mary? Many people speak to the Lord with accusation, in essence blaming the Lord for their pain. Lord, why didn't you do this? How many problems and pains could there have been avoided if the presence of the Lord was there with Lazarus and his sisters? That's how we tend to think, isn't it? But you understand that that would be a wrong response because we have no ground to ever come to God with accusation. Because He's God and we're not. Now, could it have been that she was displeased Jesus had not come back to heal Him? It's possible. I'm not going to debate that. But I think it seems more likely that she is expressing her faith in the fact that Jesus could have healed Lazarus and she's sorrowful and wishes that she, He had been here. Not in an accusative sense, but in an affirmation sense. She further expresses her faith in, faith in verse 22. Look at verse 22. What does she say next? But even now, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, she's not expecting a physical resurrection. She's expressing the fact that she has full confidence in Christ. That He is the Christ and that He and uh, God the Father, they're in perfect harmony. I know, Lord, that whatever you ask of God, He'll give it to you. And notice what Jesus says in verse 23. Your brother will rise again. That's comforting, right? We all say that today, don't we? Every funeral we come to of a Christian, they will rise again. They will rise again. Why do we say that? Because there's a resurrection day coming, right? This is what's in her mind in verse 24. What does she say? She says, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So, in Martha's mind, she's thinking in an eschatology sense. Last day, end of times sense. Now, I will note she had good eschatology right here. <laughs> she understood what Jesus had taught previously. When does the resurrection take place? On the last day. Not the last day and then there's several hundred days later or... Years later, but the last day, the very last day. Jesus taught this in John 6.40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on what? The last day. So she knew this eschatology. But she, she didn't understand that her brother would rise on the very day that she's living. She didn't get that. Jesus says, your brother's going to rise again. She's thinking future. Jesus is talking today. Today. 
Then Jesus gives us this powerful proclamation of himself, and I love it. Verse 25 and verse 26 is a challenge to all of us as to seeing the character of who Christ is. Jesus says here in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, Jesus is not merely saying that he will bring about the resurrection or cause be the cause of the resurrection, both of which are true. He's saying something much stronger. He's identifying himself with the resurrection. Identifying himself. His identity, His very character and being the power over death. And this is unmistakably proven as we read the Gospel accounts. What happens three days after Jesus is killed and gives His life and death for our sins? What happens on the third day? He rose again from the dead. And why is that important? Because Jesus has overcome death. If Jesus had remained in the tomb, you and I are wasting our time here today. The very fact that we gather as a church on the Lord's Day testifies to the world that we worship a risen Savior. He's not dead in the tomb. And because He's not dead in the tomb, guess what? Death has no claim on us either. Even though we will experience it physically, death is not the final victor. Jesus would say to the Apostle John later in the Revelation, Revelation 17 and 8, or 1 and verse 17 and 18, he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades or hell. You know what keys are, are, are a symbol of? They're a symbol of authority and power. I have the authority of death. I have the authority and power over death and hell. So now, Martha is about to see this firsthand with the resurrection of her own brother. Now, notice with me through this. As we come down through this text, notice that he asks her, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And this really is the pivotal point for all of us. Do you believe that this is who Jesus is? You understand, resurrection reaches even beyond the physical resurrection of the last day. We've come through Ephesians 2, and it's unmistakably clear, right? Our regeneration, our conversion, it's a spiritual resurrection. When we were dead in sins, He made us alive, right? If one has not experienced this spiritual resurrection into life, they will have no part in the resurrection unto eternal life. The physical resurrection. In a glorified state, they will be raised only to eternal judgment. So you understand that Christ has given His people victory over both spiritual and physical death, and it's all because He has overcome death for us. And the, question, the, the proving point of this for us in our hearts is, do we believe this? Because believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior, the One who conquered death and atoned for sin, that is the proving point of whether we've been born again. So we know regarding Lazarus and Mary and Martha, they are genuine believers. 
They are believers. They know Christ. They have eternal life with Him. They both would answer yes to this question. Do you believe this? Yes, we believe. And look at her answer. Yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. That is the confession of a true believer. Christ alone is the Christ. Jesus alone is the Christ, the promised One, the Messiah, the One who fulfills God's expectations for salvation. The Son of the living God who has come into the world. But they still are in pain having wished the Lord had spared Lazarus' life. As Jesus encounters Mary, on down in verse 32, we read that she says the same statement, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So that begs the question, was Jesus too late? Did He make a mistake in waiting two days? No, friend. Understand this, that Jesus is always on time. Jesus is always on time. Now, we may think we're late. We may think He's late. But understand that God has ordained our days and He's always on time. Now we'll see why Jesus wasn't there when it seemed that He needed to be there. Number three, and this is really where I want you to see the, the providence of God in this whole scenario. Notice the power of Jesus is demonstrated. Number three, the power of Jesus is demonstrated. And there's three things I want to point out to you here with this closing point. This is the focus of the message. I want you to see firstly His compassion in this situation. His compassion in this situation. As we come to verse 33 through verse 36, they're on their way to the tomb. And notice this. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He, being Jesus, was deeply moved in His Spirit and greatly troubled. Now, let's ponder this for a moment. Why was Jesus moved in such a way? Well, firstly, recognize that the people around Him mourning over Lazarus, they certainly affected Him. When you go to a funeral and it's filled with mourning people and you see pictures of these people, this person who has passed away, and you see the sorrow, the hurt, the, 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 the anguish that they're going through, you can't help but feel sorrow for them. You can't help but, but even mourn with them. You're moved by that moving that's going on in them. But not only that, secondly, not only where he's at in, amongst those who are mourning, This is not just some random person Jesus knew as an acquaintance or at a distance. This is His beloved friend, Lazarus. This is His beloved friend. How deeply are we moved by the passing of those who are close to us, our friends, our loved ones, our family? And notice that as He asked them where the grave is, they journeyed on, but in verse 35, notice this, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He's really crying here. If you want a memory verse to memorize, there you go. Easiest one you can find. I follow a guy on on social media, and he goes to Walmart, different areas, gas stations, and he'll offer them, I'll give you $20 if uh, you can tell me one Bible verse. Well, he went up to a lady yesterday, and guess what she said? Jesus wept. (laughs) I think that's kind of cheating, but 
It's amazing how many people don't have any clue about any verse of the Bible, though. Now, Jesus wept. Now, when we think about this, some speculate as to why Jesus would cry, because so many only focus on His divinity that they totally miss His humanity. Some, some speculate that maybe He's crying because He was bringing a man back from paradise to a sin-cursed earth only to have to die a second time. When you consider that scenario, sure, that's kind of a sorrowful thing to consider. I, I don't think that I would want to experience death twice, but if the Lord wanted me to do that, that's fine with me. Maybe that plays a role. But more importantly, I believe that we're seeing the humanity of Jesus. This truly was His friend, and this is a sorrowful moment approaching the grave. And were His tears merely just some slight tear that trickled down His cheek? They were enough to be evident to others who saw Him. The Greek word here for these tears, His weeping, has connotation of silently bursting into tears in contrast to the loud lament of a group. So, so typically you'd have these loud mourners who would mourn loudly and cry loudly, but, but this is a, 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 a more silent form of mourning and He's actually shedding tears. His inward turmoil has expressed itself in outward tears and it is evident to others. Look at verse 36. What do they say about Jesus? See how He loved Him. He is mourning for His friend. He is weeping for His friend. See how He loved Him. You understand that Jesus' example shows that heartfelt mourning in the face of death. It does not indicate a lack of faith, but an honest sorrow at the reality of suffering and death. It's okay to cry over your loved ones passing away. It's not a sin to do so. Would you ponder that for a moment? How much Jesus loved Lazarus? And how it's evidenced in His tears? Think about it in realm for us too as well. How much the Lord loves His people? You and I as His people. How is this evidence? Well, firstly, it's the obvious that Jesus has given His life for us as His people. What did, John, what did Jesus say in John fifteen thirteen? Greater love hath no man than this, than what? A man laid down his life for his friends. And he did that for us as his people. But secondly, here, here's what you see his love for us. It's evidence in his pity upon us as our great high priest. Would you consider the fact that Jesus understands and cares how you feel in your pain, in your humanity? Sometimes we don't think about that, do we? Hebrews 4.15 describes it this way about Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So many think of God or Jesus as some distant being that has no identification with us whatsoever. That's not true of Jesus. He does have identification with us. He identifies with our humanity. Why? He was a real human. A real human friend. Divine and human. He knows us. He lived a human life. He had your emotions. He faced your temptations. He endured greater trials than any of us have ever endured. 
He is full of compassion for His people. But notice secondly in realm to this. Not only do we see His compassion in this situation, we see His control over this situation. This is where we see His sovereignty in providence. In verse 37, there comes another great question here. Alright? Verse 37, But some of them said, Could not He who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Isn't that what Mary and Martha said? Now you've got these Jews who many of them are speculative of whether Jesus is the real deal or not. Couldn't He who have done this have kept Lazarus alive? All through this text we see that. Pondering the question, Jesus could have done this. As if God was not in control of every detail, even Lazarus' death. Was Jesus out of control? Did things come to pass against His desire? Absolutely not. Everything you read in this account happens under the control of our sovereign God. Under His providence. Which brings us to the reality of what He's about to do. You look at verse 38 through verse 44 and we see this marvelous miracle. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Now, did Jesus know that Jesus that, that Lazarus had been dead four days? Yep. It's part of his plan. The whole time. It's part of his plan. Jesus allowed Lazarus to die and allowed His sisters to experience the pain of mourning for the loss of their brother. And with Lazarus having been in the tomb for four days, that certifies that he really is dead. He's not just laying in there, passed out on the brink of death. He really is dead. His, the smell of his odor confirms that. And Jesus answers their statement in verse 40. He says, did, not I, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So we find that Jesus, they, confer, they go forward and do what Jesus asked them. They took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I knew that You always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that You have sent Me. So Jesus is giving indication of why this is coming to pass. And notice what happens next in verse 43. When He had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Come forth! Now can you imagine the anticipation of the onlookers standing outside the tomb, Wondering if they're going to see movement. Then they begin to hear some rustling of someone walking on the rock floor. And the appearance of a tomb-wrapped man appears in the entryway. And that man that approaches and comes out the entrance is Lazarus, wrapped in his grave clothes. It's Lazarus. It was Lazarus. What greater miracle could you have experienced or seen with your eyes? 
You understand that if Jesus wanted to, He could have called everybody out of the grave. I think it's significant that He calls Him by name. Lazarus, come out. Him. Lazarus, come out of the tomb. Is there a greater power than that which raises the dead? Absolutely not. And what this shows us is that Jesus is God and that God has power over the most hopeless scenarios. He has shown it time and time again. And we as God's people must not forget that Jesus is in control over all things that look like they're out of our control. Because they are out of our control. They're not in our control to begin with. We need to learn that. So in the end, the desire of Mary and Martha actually came to pass. Do you see this? The desire of Mary and Martha actually comes to pass. The original desire that Lazarus is well and alive. You understand this. God's delays are not always His denials. God's delays are not always His denials, though they may feel that way while we wait. There, this is where we must see that God's providence rules in our pain. Which brings us, lastly, to number three, this, His cause for the situation. What's the reason Jesus did it all this way? What's the reason Jesus did it all this way? To what purpose did Jesus wait? To what purpose did, did it come to pass in this manner? We understand that, that, that God works things in life for His purposes. As we studied in Ephesians 1.11, that God is a God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Not some things, but all things. We must not have a view of God that portrays Him as distant from our life, having no knowledge of what's going on, or without control in the details. Every aspect of this entire narrative was governed by the sovereign providence of God who ordains all that comes to pass. And knowing that God works in such a way, we may wonder why God does things the way He does. We will not always be able to answer that question, just like I said earlier. And the reason is because God is God and we're not. There's none like Him. Romans 11.34 Paul said, Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who's known it? No one but Him. But we can't learn much about this question with this narrative. We've looked at why did He allow Lazarus to die instead of coming to His rescue? Why did He allow the pain of loss to be experienced by Mary and Martha? There's three quick things here I want to give you about His cause for this entire situation. These are crucial for us to see in the text. First and foremost... The reason for this, the way it happened, is the glory of God. That is number one. The glory of God. If we miss this point, we miss the point of life itself. We miss the point of creation. We miss the point of redemption. What did Jesus say in the beginning when He heard Lazarus was sick? Come back to verse 4. I didn't read it on purpose because it comes in at the end here. When he heard, He whom you love is ill, he said, This illness is not to lead to death. It is for what? The glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This whole thing with Lazarus is for the glory of God. All that God works and allows in our lives, understand, is for His glory even if you can't see how that happens at the moment. The glory of God is the priority of God. 
Romans 11.36 makes it plain. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And what great glory is displayed here for Christ. Imagine being there at the tomb and seeing the words of Jesus call a dead man to life. The glory of such a miracle, such an event. God was glorified mightily in this miracle. But beyond the glory shown to the Lord here in this life, there's a glory beyond the grave connected to our own sufferings in this life. And here's what the Apostle Paul wrote about this. You might jot these verses down. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Paul suffered greatly. And here's what he says. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are not seen or unseen are eternal. Paul understood that God was working for His glory. And it will go on into eternity. Secondly, for His cause. Second reason he did this is for the benefit of his disciples. The benefit of his disciples. Look at verse 14 and 15 for a moment. Notice this. He says, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But he continues that sentence. And for your sake, the disciples' sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Wait a minute. Weren't the disciples already believers in Christ? Didn't they already have faith in Him? Yes, they did. They were already Christians. But understand that they were also growing in their understanding and knowledge of Jesus. Who He was. What He could do. They had had faith, but that faith needed more growth. More cultivation. More grounding. And the same applies to Mary and Martha. And through this event, they grew in their knowledge of Jesus and in their nearness to Him. And I've learned this, and I'm sure many of you have learned this. That it is in the pains of life that we grow to know God better. We grow so much more in suffering than we do in prosperity. We come to know Him more intimately. And I want you to understand that knowing Him... And being made like unto Him is the greatest good for us in our life. We hear this quoted all the time. Romans 8.28 We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. It's a beloved passage of Scripture. Do you understand that working together for good, the good is our likeness unto Jesus. The things we experience in life are about making us like unto Christ. This is not just some universal thing to every person in the world. It applies to the people of God. God works in their life for good that we may know Christ and be made like unto Him. So God works providentially even through our pains to accomplish this good. Thirdly, and lastly, I promise I'm about done. Third reason for this whole scenario, this pain that they experienced, not only was it for the benefit of His disciples, not only was it for the glory of God chiefly, but also for the belief of unbelievers. Unbelievers. 
Now what happens in verse 45 at the end of this? Come down here. After Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, what did they do? They believed in Him. This was the proving point. This is, this is the point. This is the miracle that God used to solidify faith in their hearts, giving them new life. You see, God used the pain of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha that they experienced to magnify Himself and to draw lost sinners to Himself. Did you know that God does the same thing today? Did you know that in your pains and trials, it is in those moments that people watch you more closely? They're watching you more closely in those moments. And what is it that they are in need of seeing? They need to see a genuine Christian who even in pain trusts the Lord and waits on His providence. They must see a Christian whose hope is in Christ alone. Peter wrote to suffering Christians in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. It was in their suffering, as people watched their suffering, that they were to be prepared to give a reason of the hope they have, even in their suffering. And so are we prepared in such a way? We must remember as we close out this message, we must remember that even in our pains of life, understand this, God's providence is in full control. And we may say the same thing as these sisters said, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if You had done something, my father had not died. Lord, if You had done something, I would not have gotten this sickness. Lord if, Lord if, Lord if. We can use all sorts of Lord ifs. But it really boils down to this understanding that the Lord is providential over everything in our life. It may appear like He's not, but remember that He is. He is never late. He's never rushed. He's never indecisive. He's always on time working all things with His purpose in mind. And Christian, you can rest assured that His purpose is this. It's His glory and your good. And that's a God we can trust. That's the only true God. The Lord and Savior of sinners. Your pain is for His glory. For your good. And ultimately, He'll use it as a testimony and witness to those who don't know Christ. So we ask ourselves this morning, do we trust Christ in our pain? Do we trust Him? Because He has providence over all of it. Let's stand to our feet and we'll have a closing song this morning. Our Father in Heaven, we bow before You this morning and we thank You for this passage of Scripture, Lord. This narrative, this historical account, Father, of the death of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and what Jesus came to do, the providence that we see in this whole account. Jesus intentionally waited, allowed them to experience pain of death and losing loved one, sorrow and mourning, all for the sake of Your glory and the good of Your people and the salvation of others who needed it. 
Lord, help us as Your people to recognize that You still work that way. That Your providence has not changed. That Your providence is thorough and involved in every detail of our life, even the pains of our life. We pray that You administer this Word to the hearts of the hearers as You see fit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.